Courage to Hope with Tony LaGreca is a show supporting the fight for sobriety against substance abuse and changing the stigma that comes along with it. Tony has been helping families, friends, and loved ones discover recovery services as well as coping skills for over six years following the death of his own son to opioids. Join Tony and his guests each week as they reveal the courage to hope. Here's your host, Tony LaGreca. Thank you, Ben. This is Courage to Hope, and tonight we have a very, very special guest. We have Dr. Seema Punta, and she is a disease substance abuse specialist. Yes, substance abuse specialist. Any addiction, actually, so substance abuse is one of them. Okay, um, that's right. So any addiction, so gambling, all the other ones fit into the same same category then, right? That is correct, yes. Yeah. So... How did you get into the field of addiction medicine? It seems like it's pretty narrow, pretty unique. Very, very unique, yes. Um, I actually am a primary care doctor, so I'm a general medical uh, practitioner where you go for your primary care health. And I've been doing that for over 20 years. Um, but about 10 years ago, I, I was trying to see what else I could do. You know, like, how can I add on to my work? And I was speaking to a recruiter and he was like, do you want to do Suboxone Clinic? And I'm like, what is that? Um, so new to me, even as a physician, even in training, we never heard about addiction back then. And I said, okay, I will try. I will give it a shot. So I went into one of the clinic. I saw what was happening. I, it didn't make sense to me at that time. But then I did find one clinic I liked. I worked there for a little bit, few months. It was really a new whole world that opened up. It was like, um, doing managing treatment uh, for addiction was something that I had never learned, learned it on the fly, and then just stuck with it, eventually got board certification in it. And almost for eight years now, I'm exclusively working for uh, substance abuse management. Well, that's very good. And but let the audience know, why do we need to focus on this problem? Well, the problem is in our backyard. Problem is now in our everyday lives. And we need to be more aware of this. I mean, every Every city, every town is suffering this crisis. We, nobody is like not having this problem. So opiate addiction, also known as opioid use disorder, it can affect anyone. So millions of Americans are actually suffering and millions are dying. Millions of our young kids are dying. It's leaving people crippled physically, emotionally, financially, socially. I mean, in every way you can think of. And so, and, and the overdose, which is also rising, is also a growing crisis, and our communities and governments are also now focusing on it. So we need to be more aware. We need to know what's happening so we can actually, you know, fix it, treat it, prevent it, things like that. What are opioids really for the audience to know? And, you know, what is the effect on the brain that opioids have so that people get so addicted so easily? Well, opioids are a class of drugs which doctors prescribe to manage pain. I'm assuming that most everybody has heard of opioids and know about opioids. Um, usually, they give these pain management medications when you go for dental work or you have post-operative pain, like broken bones, car accidents. And sometimes even people, they just have chronic pain. The issue may not be known, and then we just treat them with opioids. And the common names they go by is OxyContin which is oxycodone, hydrocodone, which is Vicodin, morphine, and methadone. So people start using it either for pain, as I said, or accidents and procedures. But then 
they just get addicted to it because first it is physical dependence and then it's addiction. And often enough now I see people start it recreationally and then just get addicted to it and cannot get off it. So eventually what happens though is we, we start with these opiates. They make us feel good. It's, it's like your dopamine is high. You get a high. You, you start with these tablets that I mentioned. You find them to be more expensive every day. Then people start turning to heroin. And now most of the heroin is marketed as fentanyl. So they snorted or injected IV. I mean, I can touch a little bit about our, the new, new crisis here with fentanyl a little bit because they are also opioids, but they are illegal opioids if used from the street. We use them as pain reliever and it's like hundred times more powerful than any other opioid you hear or see. Um, so it is approved for treating severe pain like advanced cancer pain, but it is very, very commonly available on the streets. It's illegally made and distributed in any small lab. And it's again, the most common cause of opiate overdose, overdose deaths at this time. So this fentanyl, it is a white powder. So it is easily combined with other drugs. They can be combined with opioids like heroin and also speed, uh, stimulants like meth and cocaine. So sometimes they mix it intentionally and they make like speed balls and goofballs. And then sometimes people go and think, oh, they're getting a Xanax off the street, or they think they're getting a fentanyl off the street, or maybe just some other drug and actually dispressed fentanyl. So it is so potent that when they get that, they just most likely overdose. And with fentanyl, we, we, as we know, the, the uh, overdose death rate is skyrocketing because it is so much more powerful than the other drugs that people think they're taking. Absolutely. But, <clears throat> What, what's actually going on in their brain, though, that like if I knew that if I took something with fentanyl in it, I might die. Uh, what's actually going on in their brain that allows them to think they should do that? You know what? You know, where is that? Because I, I mean, I'm, I'm like most people are afraid of death. So why would the fear of death be vanished under these circumstances? The thing is they have withdrawal if they don't use what they're used to using, but they are thinking they're getting their regular dose of opioids, whether it's Percocet or Vicodin or even heroin. They are not intentionally thinking they're getting fentanyl or if they have that specific fentanyl they're looking for, they kind of are aware of what amount they can take, but then it's made on the street and the dose is all over the place. And then if they're counterfeit drugs, then they didn't expect this to happen. So it is not by choice that they're looking for a higher dose or uh, a dose that can be potentially lethal. It just happens. So most of the fentanyl they get is accidental counterfeit drugs or just a dose that they didn't expect to get. So, so even, but even they, they must hear the news and they must know that fentanyl deaths are rising daily. So they, but they just overlook that under the assumption that their dealer is not providing fentanyl in their product? That is correct. Yes, they just go to the same dealers and they don't expect this to happen. Also, the withdrawal is so bad. I think maybe their judgment is clouded. Um, They just need something. And that is why probably it is just so important to know that if the cravings get the better of you, if you can't find anything else, that street drugs are just so dangerous. So speak to the doctors. Um, The community awareness will hopefully increase this education and and say to people that if you're really having trouble we are here to help so usually the the spigot of um of opioids usually starts with a prescription 
And, um, and you said sometimes it's parties, but most of the time, from what I understand, it's prescriptions. And from the prescriptions, we lead off getting addicted. Um, are some people more inclined to develop addiction than others? Um, the answer is yes. Um, yes, it is mostly prescription and some people do have more of a tendency to develop addiction. So we have like a guideline of what we consider as some factors which increase a person's risk of opiate addiction even before they start taking these drugs. So we keep an eye out for that. And on an average um, assessment, it is usually the age, the younger the population, the higher the risk, obviously the stress of their life. If they are very stressed, they're living in stressful circumstances, their unemployment um, part plays a big role. The fact that they're living below the poverty line increases their risk to addiction. Also, if they have a personal or family history of substance use, so it, it definitely plays a role in high risks. Um, history of problems with work, if they have problems with family or friends, have had legal problems in the past, including DUIs, or if they are in regular contact with high-risk people or high-risk environments where there is drug use, like we have this Mass Ave in Boston and different other areas where, I mean, there is, these are high-risk environments. The, they have struggled with severe depression or anxiety or have underlying mental health issues. It does predispose them to getting addicted, perhaps more so because they are using it to mitigate their underlying mental health. Um, the other risks are obviously using tobacco, a lot of marijuana. They tend to engage in risk-taking behavior. They have thrill-seeking behavior. All these are basically an assessment we do to see if they are going to be more at risk for these addiction behavior. So if, uh, let's say a couple of uh, uh, two parents are alcohol addicted um, it, with the possibility of being opioid addicted to their children, uh, would they have a tendency more to, you know, if they get introduced to opioids, would they probably have a higher risk of, of addiction level? Um, in general, alcohol is highly genetic. So they do increase the risk of alcohol abuse. But even for substance abuse, not even though not as a degree um, as high as alcohol, transmission would still be a high risk of substance abuse. Yes, so if both parents have alcohol use or and any other substance abuse, the children will be at higher risk of it. So um, you keep saying opioids and then use the word heroin right after. Can you explain to our listeners what the difference is between, an op between opioids and heroin? Well, heroin is also an opioid. It's just um, it's just an illegal opioid, and we don't prescribe heroin. So I, yeah, I kind it, of interchange because I'm just used to seeing patients use different things, and sometimes I interchange the word. But technically, they're all opioids. So, so basically, the, you know, heroin has this huge stigma. If uh, if my child was getting a a couple of wisdom teeth out, and the doctor gave me a prescription from to fill for my child for heroin right away, I would say, uh, what are you kidding me? Are you crazy? You know, no, heroin. But, but I'm saying, but when you give them a Percocet, aren't you basically giving them the, the same, um, same, same type of drug? It is, but heroin, it's an illegal drug, first of all. We do use fentanyl. Fentanyl is the potent drug we are talking about abuse here, but fentanyl is also given by prescription, as I said earlier, in cancer-ridden patients who have severe, severe pain. 
but obviously it, the less potent drugs like toxicodone or Percocets are given for dental pain, or it could be given to a, a kid who had a severe fracture or motor vehicle accident. So there is no stigma there. I think we need just more awareness about how many you're getting. I think the prescriptions are by and large too many. The follow-ups can be a little bit better just to make sure we are not like monitoring them. So as long as we manage this really closely, we should be okay. Sometimes we do need them. That's why they are there. We need to treat the pain that arises out of these acute medical conditions. Okay. Yeah. I'm just, I'm of the, the fact that, you know, for, um, especially for wisdom teeth, I don't think it's a necessary prescription. I think they can do out just fine with ibuprofen and ice and so forth. I, I just, many times I don't, I don't think we should be introducing opioids to people under 20, unless they've got severe cancer or some severe real critical problem, you know. Um, Most times ibuprofen um, is pretty good. Tylenol is pretty good. So we are easing up on that. But then all I'm trying to say is sometimes the pain can be legitimate and that's why those prescriptions are given. But like they don't need a month prescription. You know, if you have a, even if you have a fracture that was bad or you had a surgery, you really don't need a month prescription. You could get very much like two or three days and then a close follow-up to see how your pain has changed. So monitoring closely is the key here. Yeah, but sometimes certain people, even two or three days, the 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 kind of euphoric feeling they get from taking it yeah. encourages them to say, "Wow, I really felt great on that." I mean, I mean, way back when I had my first knee operation, I remember them giving me um, oxycodone or oxycontin, one or the other, and uh, <clears throat> and I remember lying there at one o'clock in the morning and feeling like I was flying in space and just dreaming away, you know? So I, I get it. You know, I understand exactly how that feeling can be, you know? And so, and once you've got a taste of it, I'm sure it, it's hard to dis get rid of it. Um, so let's just talk about, you know, if you have a, if you're a parent and you have children and you think that your uh, loved one is abusing opioids of some kind, uh, what are the signs that they should be looking for? Usually we want to make sure that our children are talking to us. If we're talking about children, we want to be aware of their day-to-day -day activities, not like monitoring them closely, but their moods, their um, attitudes and their sleep patterns and things like that. But commonly the signs of opioid addiction, they include like people who are taking an opioid by prescription, but they are not taking it according to the prescription. Like the, as doctors, when we are monitoring them, we say, oh, you're taking too much or we didn't give it to you this way. And now you want an early refill because you took too much because people like the way they feel and they want to take more or they'll come and say they lost their prescriptions. So as, this is the doctor's part. But to go to answer your question about parents. So we just want to see if our children or loved ones have mood changes, like excessive swings from elation to hostility their sleep pattern is changing. Are they borrowing medication from other people or losing medications? And, you know, in general, just their mental health. Are they depressed? Are they anxious? Who are they hanging out with? So seeking the same prescriptions from multiple doctors is also a key that we need to keep looking out for. What kind of decisions are children making? Like our children could range from a 15-year-old to 30-year-olds, right? So if they're young and they live in the same house, we want to just monitor their their mental health very closely in that way. Keep an eye on it, get, get your gut feeling. Um, and if you feel something is not in line, talk. 
things like that. Just be aware. If you're not aware, you won't look for those things. So if you have this suspicion, um, what would be your first, you know, you're talking to them and everything, but at what point would you get down and say, you know, let's go get a drug test or something unless, you know, and if they get, you know, they obviously they have this strong resistance and saying, uh, what, don't you trust me? Or what's my problem and that kind of thing. So, you know, how do you guide the, the parents on that one? I, I don't really deal with children under the age of 18. So that's a little bit um, not something I can answer very very well but like i would say if you feel something is not in line the first thing is to open the line of communication like you said they will not want to talk they can resist they can get upset if they're using they'll be upset if they're not using they'll still be upset right why are you asking me this question but yeah. you have a good communication and you tell them about your concern you you tell them about what's going on and why it's bothering you it's just like maybe them get them to agree because you can't force them i mean sometimes if you really think they are in danger certainly you can um section them at which point then they are hospitalized or you know treated accordingly and this has happened but that is a step you might want to take if you really really think there was something serious going on um the child was missing for days or is using or you see needle marks or you just clearly have way more information the child is suicidal, under other mental health issues. But other than that, in general, if you think or if you just suspect, then it is best to have an open communication, talk to the counselors in school, see what your other options are, things like that. Okay, so we'll talk more about 18 and over people now. So they, if, if they do have a problem, um, what are the percentages that recovery is possible? And maybe not percentages, but... Um, overall, <clears throat> today, do we have a, a decent plan going? Oh, yeah, today more than ever. So, yeah, 10 years ago when I started doing this, it was existing. Now it is uh, everywhere. I mean, you open up the websites and you look for information, it's everywhere. The government is increasingly doing a lot and a lot more stuff. Even I have clients and patients where their workplace is supporting them in recovery. So recovery is completely possible. Recovery means the overall goal of treatment is to return people to productive functioning in their family, workplace, and the community. Everything. They should be able to do what they were doing before they got addicted to anything in a very productive and happy manner. They should be able to have their life, have, have their family, be married, kids, work productively, everything. So if they come for treatment, we have different ways um, of it because if they're in very acute situation, then we manage them accordingly. And then we slowly um, do the outpatient. But the bottom line is recovery is completely 100% possible. So the Suboxone that you mentioned in the very beginning, what actually is Suboxone? So Suboxone, also known as buprenorphine. Buprenorphine is the generic term. So we use that because it's a partial opioid, it means that it actually stops the person's craving. So let's say a person has been addicted to um, any opioid, whether it's Percocet or, or Oxycodone or, or even fentanyl. When they don't take their dose, they have withdrawal symptoms. They're going to be very sick. They're going to be shaky. They will have restlessness, palpitations, insomnia. And it's, it's really bad. They really feel like bad if i can use the word shit they really feel bad so we just want to make sure that they don't feel like that 
So this medicine, Suboxone, actually helps them not to feel so bad about their withdrawal symptoms. There's other medications, of course, which we use. We call them comfort meds, but Suboxone is the key medicine. So it blocks that feeling of feeling bad, but also the craving is stopped. They don't go and crave like if they don't have that do dose of opioid, they're going to like get sick. So we that is one specific medication we use um, to support their recovery. So Suboxone, um, do you, does that come in different dose availabilities? In other words, is it different milligrams and Suboxone like there is an Oxycontin and that sort of thing. So if a patient comes in and they've been taking 200 milligrams of Oxycontin a day or Oxycodone, um, you treat them differently than somebody who's taken 50 milligrams. Is there more, you get more or less Suboxone or is it kind of the same? It is actually different. It's a great question. So people who are using heavily, and I would say in clinical practice, I would say anybody using fentanyl, um, one to three grams IV or snorting would be a heavy user. Somebody who's using a few Percocet pills um, and is not feeling that much sick when they withdraw, they're not that heavy a user. But Suboxone is a, is a drug that is mixed. Buprenorphine is mixed with naloxone. And here the, we do this so that the, um, they don't abuse the drug. And bottom line is it comes in two milligrams, four milligrams, and eight milligram doses. And then we titrate those doses depending on their, um, how they feel when they withdraw, their, the, how much drug they have been used to using. In heavy, heavy users, we use about 16 milligrams a day. Usually um, it is a film. They put it in their mouth. It dissolves in the mouth slowly over 20 to 30 minutes. And it can be used once a day or it can be used twice a day, depending on the dose that I give them. And then slowly we tight, um, titrate them down and it can go down to as much as two milligrams a day before we take them off completely. So um, depending again on the need and severity, we do prescribe different doses. If they're into the recovery center, are they usually acceptable to the idea of going on Suboxone? Uh, they are. Again, we discuss with them. We just don't give it to them. We don't just say, you need it. I actually sit down with my patients and I explain to them why we need Suboxone if I think we need it. And if they feel very sick, they are open to the idea. Some people want to take it for a little bit longer time because they feel they may go back to the community and relax. And this is better than relaxing. And some people say, say they want to quit cold turkey which is fine if they have enough of support and um, they feel they can manage without it because if they do feel the cravings, they can always come back to treatment and it, and it can be initiated at that time. Um, so I, I speak with them, I educate them, and then they actually decide if they want to go on it or not. And more often than not, they do go on it. And what if they're, on, what if they're addicted to alcohol? Um, now, now, what's the approach with this? Alcohol and Suboxone are not for each other. Alcohol is a completely different um, ballgame. Uh, we use different drugs for alcohol addiction. Um, naltrexone is one of them. And then we use something called Antabuse. And then there is Acamprosate, Camprow. So Naltrexone is also actually, I, I'm going to mix this a little bit now. Um, naltrexone is also used for um, the opioid addiction treatment. So some people, they don't want to go on Suboxone because it's a partial opioid. Naltrexone is a full blocker, means all these little receptors we have in our body uh, for opioid, in the brain, in the body, in our respiratory system, everywhere. All these are 
blocked by the use of this drug called naltrexone. Naltrexone is available as tablets and also by injection. And some people say, oh, that's good enough for me. As long as I don't have cravings, I'm good. I went through my withdrawal. I, I did it for a week, two weeks, whatever it was for them. And now Suboxone isn't for me, but I do have a little bit of craving and I want something. And that is where naltrexone can be given as once a 28 days, once a month injection to them. And then eventually they can go off naltrexone if they feel they're strong enough to be not relaxing. Now, the same thing can be done for opioid users as well. We can do, um, I think we just talked about that, sorry. Um, it can be done for alcohol addiction. So if they're having cravings, then we use naltrexone injections for them. Okay, so now, with, as you say, a lot of different types of addiction. So let's talk about gambling for a second. Now, I don't know if you deal much with the gambling addiction, but or even sex addiction. Um, I'm one of the ones with the gambling side. And, you know, you, you say, you know, you're talking about the alcohol or the, you know, they've they got a craving. So and you give them medicine for their craving. Is there such a thing for somebody who is a an addicted gambler? I mean, now that we have sports betting everywhere you look, I think that's going to be the newest, biggest addiction problem. I mean, you might you won't die from it, but you might go broke from it. You know, where do we where do we stand with that, and how do you how do we treat that type of addiction? Um, we don't. I have not personally seen much of that in our clinic here. It's mostly the substance use with opioids, with cocaine, with meth. Uh, and I'm alcoholic, a lot of alcohol that I see. Um, the science behind the addiction would be the same. Anything that gives you that intense surge of pleasure or, you know, high, and then you want to do it over and over again. And like you said, you may not die for, from it, but it kind of just pretty much destroys the life in every other way. Um, I have found that drugs that we were using, like even like baclofen that we sometimes use for cocaine addiction to reduce that craving. It, there is some crossover. I mean, I find that it's helpful for people with gambling addiction. Sometimes I've found people saying to me, well, they took naltrexone for gambling addiction and it helped them. So this is a bit of a gray zone where we do a little bit of trial and error to see what could help them. But again, uh, I think the cornerstone of treatment is not just the drug or this, but it's, it's a mix of everything. The coping skills, the group therapy, the support system, um, a lot of... Um, hand holding and walking through it for a long time. It's not just like a week or two weeks. It's going to be a process. So drug RN adjunct, uh, we can use those medications and see if it can help them. Um, and we manage everything else with therapy and things like that. Okay. Um, how do you, when somebody decides that they want to go into treatment, how do you, uh, what would be the best way to, for them to look for a treatment center? And is, it, is the, uh, the addict the one who really should be looking or should it be their, their spouse or their some relative that's helping them? How would, how would you work? That? How do you feel about that? We have clients from um, in all different sorts of ways that come to us. Um, sometimes people will sit down with me and I ask them, like, why are you here? What made you come here? How did you find us? All these questions to understand their whole situation, the overall goal, the motivation. And some people will say, well, we've been using, we started using it for pain or whatever party. And now we are using drugs all the time. I'm broke. I'm in legal trouble and I'm getting tired of this life. Bottom line is they are sick and tired of living that life. The economics is hard. Their marriage is falling apart. They can't see their children. 
And I mean, the drugs are hard to find too. They have to kind of go find it every day. They're living in fear of not finding the drugs every day. So besides all the the things I mentioned, as like the economics, the, the society, the expense, the, all this stuff, then they just want to get better. Now, when they come to that point where a person who is old enough, 21, 20, and they want to get better, and they say, now, where do I go? What do I do? So they have different ways to actually find. One is obviously our great Google, the internet. If they search on it, they will pop up all these various treatment centers that are increasingly available to us these days. Um, they can call them. They can find out what kind of treatments are available. Um, if they feel they want to just go for one consult or find out if they're candidates for daily treatment versus, you know, just once a week treatment, then they just go in and the doctors evaluate them. For very, very, very sick patients, we tell them that they should either go to a detox center where they go and stay there for a um, a week to maybe three or four weeks where they can actually get all the comfort medications and then they get transitioned into outpatient therapy. But many times the kids are young. They may be, again, like I said, I don't see that population, but let's say in society, there was a 16, 17 year old. They're really not that um, able to find out where they can go. So oftentimes if there is an overdose, they end up in the ER. And then ER is the one along with social workers who helps them or their parents or their loved ones find a treatment facility that best suits their needs at that time. So, so patients can look in the internet, they come to us because they, they want to live a better life, they want to get better. Or at times when the loved ones feel that this is it, we've now found that our child or our loved one is having a problem, now we need to find a place for them. So then they start looking through the internet, they call their insurance companies, if they can um, suggest something, they can call local police stations, they can call even if they're not in the ER, or even if they're not in the hospital, certainly local hospitals are a great resource, you talk to somebody, a social worker in the hospital who can guide you in the right direction. When they're on the Suboxone, um, how long are they on it for? Is this something they're going to take forever? Or is this something that they're going to be weaned off after a while? It's not forever. It's mostly um, about one to five years. So most of the studies, they will show, depending again, case by case, some patients wean off in a month, which is very, very rare because they just never wanted to take it in the first place. They're like, okay, I just don't want to withdraw so badly, so I'll take it. So that's your ultra short course of Suboxone. Some people say, fine, I just don't want to go relapse. I'm okay with taking some low dose medications as long as I keep tapering it. So by and large, the goal is to keep them for three to five years as we slowly keep attempting to bring it down and as we slowly increase their social structure support. Because if we don't keep that in place, the relapse rate is going to be very high. Yeah, I've seen a lot of people who are sober for a year, year and a half, and then they relapse and they die almost instantly. Um, I met somebody a mom who lost a child who basically told me the same thing. The child was sober for 10 years. But when these people relapse, now they are introduced to the new drugs, which are extremely potent. And we had touched this um, question earlier, but here are those people who didn't know how, how uh, lethal or how much fentanyl they're getting in their system. They just think it's, oh yeah, one gram or whatever I was using. And now instead of one gram of of heroin that they were getting, it's it's cut with fentanyl, and then they overdose and die. Yeah, that seems to be their biggest problem this year. 
in the last years, the fentanyl being mixed in with all the different drugs and uh, all of that. At this time, we're going to take a little time out and we'll be back with you in a minute. Tony LaGreca here. I want to tell you about a special event coming this October. Finding Hope in Grief is a support conference scheduled to take place on October 22nd and 23rd at the Doubletree Hilton in Westboro, Mass. The conference is for anyone who lives or works in Massachusetts and is bereaved by the death of a loved one from substance use. If you are interested in attending the conference and sharing a weekend of hope, healing fellowship, and remembrance, you can go to the SAD website, sadod.org. The conference is sponsored by the Department of Public Health and the Bureau of Substance Addiction Services, also supported by the AdCare Educational Institute. Limited tickets are available, so get yours now. Again, that's sadod.org to register and sign up early. Well, welcome back. And we're interviewing Dr. Seema Gumta, doctor who is an addiction specialist. I'd like to say that is Dr. Gumta, is that a good analysis of what you are? Yeah, thank you, Tony. Yes. We were, we were talking during the break about different things that you'd like to talk about, and especially the politicians and how they handle the, the whole drug problem of the opioid epidemic. And I'd like you to um, speak to us about what you think should be done. I, I think there are a lot of things being done. First thing is the education, awareness, remove the stigma, um, encourage physical activity. I just don't think it should be at the level of our homes. It should be at the level of society. Um, now, the doctors, we have a state license. Every doctor, we have like either a Massachusetts license or a New Hampshire license or a multi-state license, but they're still directed by the state. When we have a crisis like what we have in terms of opioid um, deaths and obviously opioid um, destroying our lives in many other ways, I think the there could be a committee or there could be a task force that will basically allow us to practice across borders. Um, I mean, at this day and age, when we are fighting, we are putting money in, we are trying to support everybody to recover. Somebody should not be able to not get treatment because a doctor wasn't available. And this is still the case. There are doctors not available to manage this on a day-to-day basis. Um, To educate our doctors more, educate our society more, um, perhaps treat this at the national level, not just at the state level. Did they used to have a limit on how many uh, patients you could treat with Zaboxin? There is actually a limit. So what happens is, let's say just a general practitioner, uh, a medical doctor, a primary care provider, they want to prescribe Suboxone. So they cannot, not everybody can prescribe these medications. So to prescribe, they have to actually do a certificate course. It's called waiver, quote unquote, waiver course. And they get like an X, like a letter X license and their DEA number. Then they start with, I think if I recall correctly, they start with prescribing 25 or 30. Um, managing 30 clients a year, which then increases to 100. And then if you're board certified, it increases um, to over 200. And um, I have the addiction specialty, so I can actually do that. But why restrict? Um, I understand if you want to restrict in the first year so that the doctors get more experience and um, don't overwhelm themselves. But at the same time, we should have this at a federal level. 
it should be a national uh, approach, not just a statewide approach. The other drug we have not mentioned is methadone. Correct. And, and you're into the Suboxone, yet I know literally thousands of people just in Massachusetts get that dose of methadone every single day. What is the difference between treating somebody with Suboxone or methadone? And how about the results? You know, where is the better results coming from? I have had clients who have done well with methadone as well. Um, I don't prescribe, though I can. Uh, we mostly do Suboxone, but people have to often go for daily dosing. Um, it is still a stronger drug than um, Suboxone, and they both treat equally well. Uh, Suboxone, in my opinion, I find patients tend to do a little bit better in terms of easy to taper, uh, managing on day-to-day life. Oh, I also wanted to mention that methadone is only available as an oral pill. Suboxone actually now is also available as an injection. So people do get tired of going. I mean, imagine going every day or every week for your prescriptions. So Suboxone as an injection can be done every 28 days. It's called Sublocade and patients love it. It just makes them free to travel, free from taking one you know, pill or film every day. Um, it's just an easier approach in my opinion, although they're both effective. And that's what I want to point out. They're both very effective. Well, you said there was naloxone in Suboxone. Is there any naloxone in methadone? No, it isn't. It's just in the, um, in the Suboxone. They also sell buprenorphine only um, tablet, which is if you're allergic to this naloxone component, which we use. But the key ingredient is the buprenorphine, not the naloxone. Yeah, something you may not know is that my son died of an acute overdose of methadone. Sorry, that that's, that. Yeah, and, and the complaint was that they never reduced his, they didn't reduce his, his amount that he was taking and he was taking it for two and a half years. And that was a, that was a problem. And he just went to sleep and didn't wake up. And yeah, because um, basically his brain went to sleep and his heart stopped beating, you know, and um, it's a very, very, very long acting drug. Yeah. And that's what they said that he had an acute aware, you know, there was a buildup of it in his body. It didn't, just didn't leave them and they weren't doing blood tests or urine tests or anything. So that's the, the question I have is when you're on Suboxone, do you have them require them to do blood tests periodically or urine tests periodically? So it's unlike methadone where we don't have, it's not that long acting. It doesn't have those toxicities. So it's definitely, I think, safer. That's my opinion. Uh, we do require periodic urine tests, but that is to make sure that they are taking it. Um, it does have a high level of diversion. A lot of people will sell it. It has a street value. Um, why would it have a street value? Now, people who are on opioids and are looking for you know, drugs every day, like we talked about earlier, they don't like to have that withdrawal feeling. So they'll take Suboxone. So if they find it on the street and they can't find fentanyl, they will buy Suboxone. And so that we want to reduce the diversion. And so we want to check the urine periodically to make sure they're taking it as intended and not just like selling it. Um, we don't need any blood work. Um, oftentimes we just want to make sure their liver is good. Um, but other than that, it's a very, very safe medication to take. Now, the, another thing I've noticed is a lot of people who are on Zaboxone or methadone or any, even any kind of opioid, uh, they have a lot of anxiety issues. Uh, they drugs that are safe that, that they should take for anxiety that on this Adderall and some of these other ones that I've seen 
that they mix with these. Um, what happens when you mix an Adderall or any of these other drug type drugs for anxiety with a with Suboxone? You mean separately, not mixed as in one tablet, but if they need- No, 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 their... yeah, separately. They take one at noon and one at two o'clock in the afternoon or whatever, right. yeah, separately. So this is a very common problem. It's dual diagnosis, it's called, having substance use along with general anxiety, perhaps depression, ADD. Um, a lot of patients have trauma in the past that drove them to this anxiety or depression or PTSD. And then as they have substance abuse, it also feeds off it. It just becomes a very vicious cycle. So it needs to be managed. And to answer the question about medications, there are a lot of safe medications we use to manage this. And um, I work at on-call treatment and we do this all the time. There's always psychiatry. Um, there's a psychiatrist who basically does a consult, assesses them. We um, give them SSRIs, they're called, like these are commonly known as Lexapro or Zoloft, all these kinds of medications. We use them to manage their anxiety. Um, Adderall can also be used. So we do need to manage their underlying mental health issue to be um, successfully treating their substance abuse. And while they're in this recovery thing, what else can they do to facilitate their recovery to, to make the chances better that they're gonna, they're gonna pull through it? There's a lot of things we offer. So like with recovery, so first step is the acute detox. So in acute detox, they're physically recovering. They're, they're just coping with all the withdrawal symptoms. They're getting the comfort meds. But as they transition after a couple of weeks into what we call partial hospitalization, this is where they attend the full day program and then either go home or to their sober house and then come, come back with the programs five days a week. Here we have therapy. We have site consoles, but we also have groups, lots of groups. And groups, I've found patients love them because they just suddenly find other people struggling like them. They are not alone. They can uh, also sometimes offer a lot to other people in terms of um, support, not just get support, give support. It's a lot of give and take going on. They join other groups like Narcotic Anonymous, Alcohol Anonymous. Um, so they become a resource for that. Um, many centers will offer ther therapies like yoga, art therapy, music therapy. All these are just um, ways you become happy. You, you get happy hormones and suddenly you're feeling a lot better. Do not forget the role of exercise. Exercise is good for as much physical health is as good for mental health. And exercise is the key. Having a good diet is the key. So all these things we incorporate in the partial hospitalization program to encourage them to do all this good diet, exercise, encouraging groups, you know, do art therapy, dancing, talking, things like that. Yeah, I think exercise is a very important part of it for sure. I know if you're exhausted and you're worn out, you aren't going to be thinking about anything but getting rest, <laughs> you know, yeah, but I mean, you feel you really feel good after you've worked out. Sometimes you don't like to go, but once you're done, it, it's a big uplift for you. It for is your... a big uplift. I mean, people, um, all, all these clients also have a huge amount of them have insomnia. They can't sleep because they haven't been moving around as much uh, or they just are too stressed or anxious or just have other causes of sleep uh, problems. But once they start exercising, I find that these things start to improve in leaps and bounds. So very regular, I mean, it doesn't mean you have to exercise for five hours a day, but even if you have regular routine of exercise along with proper diet, quitting smoking, all these things, you know, which makes for better physical health will also make for best, better mental health. 
Yeah, I used to remember that in GA, which Gamblers Anonymous meetings, everybody back in the day was smoking. My goodness, it was like a it was like a fog bank when you walk. That's one of the things I didn't like because I'm a non-smoker, have been all my life. And those old meetings used to be nothing but smokeathons while they were talking about how to stop gambling. You know, yeah, yeah, uh, it's uh, it was kind of tough. So. As a society, do you think we're doing enough to help right now to, to alleviate or to start reducing this opioid epidemic? When are we doing enough? We are doing enough when no child or no person dies of overdose. No person is riddled with this issue. We are. We are trying our best and we are doing more every day. And that's the key. We, you're doing this, this talk. Um, hospitals are putting out as much information for people to to read CDC is one of the areas you can go and look up what it, what the problems are, where you can go for treatment or any other information. A uh, Mayo Clinic has information. There is something called NIDA, which is National Institute of Drug Abuse. All these have resources. And schools are now offering a lot of education. The counselors, they know more. They know how to handle. They know how to look for it, how to look for problems. So to answer, yes, we, we are doing what we can. It's never enough. Um, until we completely make this go away. If somebody's listening to this show now for 50 minutes and they, they want you to be their, their doctor, you know, uh, how do they find you? Where do you work now that we can, they, they could actually show up and you would be there? Okay. <laughs> I actually, right now, I'm a medical director at On Call Treatment Center. It's located in Waltham. Um, we offer partial hospital program. Now, it sounds a bit scary when I say hospital, but it's really a more intensive program for becoming, um, for recovery. It's a good start because um, just going once a week right away may not be enough. So it's always good to have a few days or a few weeks of intensive therapy, more support, as we talked about different modalities of support being, you know, different kinds of art therapy, music groups, etc. So here we get a good jump start. So the, this facility is located in, um, in Waltham, Massachusetts, as I mentioned. The address for on-call in, um, treatment facility in Waltham is 564 Main Street, Suite 100, Waltham, Mass. And our phone line is 1-833-287-7223. Okay, Main Street is the Main Street, literally. It's, is that, is is that Route 20? And, and I really love, I've been working here for about a year now. I'll tell you, Tony, I love working here. Every day I, I go there, I feel so good. Patients are there to get better. They're not there to play games. They're there to get better. This, um, every staff, I love the staff. They're so motivated, so dedicated to recovery. I'm not just saying it because I'm on the air. I truly love this place. That's quite a, an endorsement right there. <laughs> Have you... You go to work and you're happy that you're going to work. That's a, that means you definitely have the right job. Yes. You know? I mean, and, I was ready to retire. I was like, I'm going, I'm leaving. I'm going to go to Florida. I'm going to you know, retire a little bit now. But this place is so great. I love what I do so much. I'm here for a few years. Well, by looking at you, you've got a lot more tomorrows than you had yesterday. So I wouldn't be thinking of retirement yet. You'd be probably go out of your mind. Uh, you have... You have way too much energy to be somebody who's thinking of retirement in any way, you know. Um, well, one other thing is getting rid of opioids. Um, I'm curious to hear what your opinion is and how you dispose of unused opioids. 
So anytime you have excessive medications and you want to dispose of them, there is, um, you can look at on Google, there's a flush list, do not flush list and opioids are on the flush list. We do not ask, we not, let me rephrase it. We tell you, do not put it in trash, flush it and look for drug take back programs. Every town, every community has it. If you can't find it anywhere, ask your local pharmacy or go to your local police station where you can return the unused drug. I mean, you could think that it is locked. Nobody's going to get it. You'll be surprised. So the best way is to dispose it properly. It's very important. Yeah, I was told by someone to wrap them up in coffee grinds and then flush them down the toilet. It doesn't matter whether you have a, a, a well, I mean, a, a cesspool or a city sewage or anything. It, once they're down into the water, they're just going to dissolve and go from there. And yeah, I've, I've always had my second doubts about going into certain areas. Like, and I'll be honest, police stations, that there may be one person there who's got an addiction problem or two. And we, you know, you never know where, whose hand's going in the cookie jar. You know, I just mm-hmm. see that. The, the other thing that I strongly recommend to people is that they, they if they have any opioids in your house, and especially older people, um, when you have somebody come in, and I had somebody, my, uh, my wife was on opioids for a short time, and, and, um, and somebody came in to an assistant plumber, and they went right through the medicine cabinet while they were working on the pipes in the bathroom. Wow. You know? Keep them locked. And uh, another one that when I was in, uh, as a bereavement facilitator, I've heard stories of their daughters went to work on a cleaning company so they could go in and houses, two or three houses a day and look for pills, you know, and didn't have to take too many, take a little bit each time and they never missed them, you know. And uh, that's what people have to understand. An opioid in your house is just like having a loaded gun in your house. If you're on any type of, uh, narcotic, you need to lock it up just like you would a gun that's loaded I because because yeah. it's not only the, 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 the people who are coming into your house, it could be your grandkids, yeah. could be your own daughter, it could be anybody, your own son, anybody that you don't know they got a problem. And so don't, don't make it easy for them. You know, make sure that that is something that's well, well covered, you know. Um, so is there any question that I haven't asked you yet that you'd like to And I just want to say one more thing, because you were talking about how we don't want to make it accessible for them. Um, Oftentimes, I hear clients, they say, well, I just had a headache. And my friend said, here, take this medicine. Uh, It'll make you feel better. So we also want to be very careful about using any medicine anybody offers us. Do not do that. Yes, I, I know a gentleman who runs now a company called Relatives Against Purdue Farmer, and his son went to a graduation party. And he took one pill, but he also washed it down with a bottle with a bottle of beer, and he died from it. Oh wow! Because the, the one pill was was uh, oxycontin, and it was it was a real high dose. It was like forty or eighty milligrams. Yeah, or it could be pressed fentanyl, which is very common these days, as we discussed. That's right. It could have been a fake, but yeah. this one this was twenty years ago, so it was definitely the real stuff. But um, but his son die from it you know and he's been on a mission now for over 20 years and um you did you happen to review the watch the, the tv series dope sick 
No, I have not. I actually, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned it on the show so people can actually watch it. There's other series also now giving you different stats, different reality um, checks on what's going on in your backyard. Like you said, community awareness. I think Hulu has one show where they are talking about pretty much in detail about what's going on. Yeah, the, the Dope Sick one, which is on Hulu. And the other one that I recommend is um, The Pharmacist. The Pharmacist. Uh, is that on Hulu as well? Uh, that's actually on Netflix. Okay. Yeah, Netflix. That's a three-part series. And Hulu is an eight-part series. And um, But the Hulu thing is how, how the drug salespeople went into West Virginia and Western part of Virginia and to the Smoky Mountain areas because they figured that was in a low hanging fruit target where they could go in and because so many people had injuries from working in the mines okay. that, uh, that the doctors, you know, started prescribing based on the, all of the information that they were getting from the Purdue pharma salesperson saying that it was non-addictive, less than 1% would get addicted and a whole lot of things. So somebody really wants to understand how the whole, uh, epidemic really got started around 1995 when Oxycontin became a, um, a an everyday drug. Um, watch Dope Sick, I think, is the best one that I've. That's everything was put together. Danny Strong was the director of that, and he, it was a book, and he put it into a eight part series, and um, it's a terrific, terrific piece. And, you know, you can sign up for Hulu for a month and then cancel it if you don't want to keep it. But it's really worth, if you have any doubt or any question about relatives or of yours or even yourself, if you really want to know what's going on in the, in the world of the opioid epidemic, that, that is the best thing to observe. Yeah, well, maybe that's the one I was talking about. I've watched one of them. And, and maybe this is what our government needs to do. Maybe our political parties need to make this available to everybody if they don't have Hulu. It's more information. It's, it's getting more awareness. Um, absolutely. You know, so Dr. Gumta, I'm going to let you go. And um, for our listeners, she's done a great job and she's a little under the weather today on top of it. And uh, she was a, she's a trooper. She with the ten- <laughs> as yeah, Thank you. Added- You're the one doing all the work with all the podcasts and education and awareness. Well, that's our goal. And, and with people like Dr. Gumter, that's where we have the courage to hope, because if somebody you know is addicted and they have a problem, uh, there is hope. There are a lot of there are other doctors like Dr. Gumter out there who is willing to help and treat your loved one, and just got to get into it. Just um, as long as they're breathing, there's hope, there and that's that's what we've got to do. You know, we don't want them on the other side because that's a much more difficult road. We want them on this side, and we want them to be in treatment. We want people to be know that other people care for them and that they will, there are people out there like Dr. Gumta to help you. And I want to thank you very much for your time. It's been, it's been a pleasure having you on. It's been my pleasure entirely. Thank you so much. Thank you.